Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Imagine for a moment, if you will, a world in which childbearing and childrearing became a state-sanctioned and sponsored event. A world in which women were looked after during pregnancy and where a team of professional carers were on hand 24-7 to look after mother and baby in those first tentative postnatal months, ensuring the baby gets the best start in life and mum has to worry about nothing except feeding and bonding with her baby. What would that world look like? What social and political imperatives would need to exist to prioritise the health and welfare of the future of the human race in such a fashion? Well, my next guest has done more than imagine such a world. She has written a book about it. Set in Australia in the year 2040, Rebecca Bowyers has crafted a world in which the welfare of the child is the paramount consideration. A world in which women give birth to babies, spend six months raising them before they must hand them over to professional carers. After their duties are completed, the women are able to pursue study or careers, safe in the knowledge that their offspring are well cared for. And children are guaranteed a life free from poverty, where they live in stable, loving homes, safe and secure. But what is the cost of such a utopia? The book is called Maternal Instinct, a self-published debut title released earlier this month. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Rebecca to the podcast today. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Claudine. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to say congratulations on such a wonderful debut. It's such a fascinating take on one of the most topical issues of modern times, especially here in Australia. And you've explored so many themes and issues which affect modern parenting. Thank you so much. It's it's so exciting to have it out in the world and, and talked about and something that um, parents, especially mums, but dads as well, can really connect to. So I wondered if you could tell me more about the book and then also what inspired you to write this story. I started writing it back in early 2015 but the genesis for it come comes way before then I had my first child in 2010 Uh, before that I was in a professional job I took 12 months out and it was a real shock to the system um, to discover how my status changed so it it felt like I'd almost become invisible um, outside of the workplace and then I was just biding time to get back to work Um, I absolutely loved being at home with both my children I had my second son in 2012 but the disconnect between the value that we place on on the professional uh, workplace and the value that we place on raising children is just incredible it's it's such a gulf Um, I wrote an article for Mamma Mia in 2015 I think it was about uh, it was a an amusing article about what it would look like if the role of mother was an actual professional paid job um, and it, it's a pretty tough one. So instead of a 40-hour week, we're looking at 168-hour week. Um, we're required to know so much in so many different areas, and yet this is all unpaid. So trying to explain that to people was, was really difficult because we take it so for granted that anyone doing a caring role, whether that's for elderly parents, um, an ill relative or friend or children, does it for the love of it um, and because it's a, a private responsibility. So I wanted to, to have a look at what it would look like if we actually really did value parenting. And because I wasn't 
wasn't really getting the understanding that I was hoping for talking to people. They'd say, oh, but parenting is valued. You know, you're doing a great job and it's a privilege to be a parent. I thought, no, no, you're, not, you're just not getting it. So I decided to write an entire book about it um, and that's how Maternal Instinct came about. I was telling you just before we started recording that as a professional woman myself who gave up working outside the home to raise my own children, this book really resonated with me. Back when I was having my kids, paid paternity leave wasn't a thing. Um, I gave birth, my husband took me home and promptly returned to work. And I wasn't alone in this experience. This was the experience of generations of women. You had to learn to cope on your own. Um, And you were lucky if you had your own mum around to give you an hour or so of respite to have a lie down. But by the time number two and number three come along, the idea of being able to rest when your baby does is obscene. And yet somehow we all manage to muddle through with varying degrees of success, don't we? We absolutely do. I'm sitting here nodding along. Um, (laughs) I was... I was extremely fortunate to be um, with an employer who has uh, paid paternity leave yeah. uh, and when the when the government paid paternity leave came in, by the time my second child was born, it was, was even easier. I managed to get 12 months with some sort of pay, so it made it much better for us. But my husband still had to go back to work after a couple of weeks and what I, what I found was this whole idea that women should be the primary carer. He really enjoyed uh, knowing what our son was doing, uh, when he did it. And he was a real expert on him until such point as he went back to work. Mm. Um, and then, of course, if you're, not, if you're not around a baby all day every day, you're not going to look like an expert. So I, I think that's, um, that's part of the trap that we fall into is having women be the exclusive primary carers um, in those early days and not allowing the dads to have as much time. So I think life would be a lot easier if we had a bit more of a balance. Yeah, exactly. So, look, I've been very fortunate to have read a copy of your book and I was wondering if you could tell my listeners more about the story. Absolutely. So Alice is is our main character or one of our main characters. She is 39 years old. She's just been through a bit of a cancer scare. Uh, as we open the book, her daughter, uh, Monica, who's 19, is visiting, visiting her in the hospital after uh, an operation to get rid of the cancer. Um, Alice is a very, very senior um, public servant in the the society in 2040. She's in charge of the genetic diversification system um, and the Department of, of Reproduction and Genetics. So in the world where parenting is, is very important, she is a bit of a minor celebrity. So when she shows up somewhere, there'll be cameras following her. And Monica has tried to keep her mother's identity a bit of a secret um, among her friends because she doesn't want the notoriety that goes with it. So Alice is very, very rule-abiding. She's grown up in the system. She was one of the first people to be uh, required at at the age of 18 to go into a birthing home um, and give birth to two children. Um, Only one of those children uh, has grown up, and to avoid spoilers, you'll find out what happened to to baby number two as the book goes on. Um, but her daughter um, Monica is not so not so excited about the uh, the state of things. She refuses to acknowledge that it's a great society because most people do think it's fabulous. I mean, kids are they don't live in poverty. Uh, mums get looked after. The society is completely equal because men and women uh, both have to have this few years out just after high school, so no one gets more career time than the other. The baby's healthier because younger mothers are, are giving birth to them um, and they're looked after by professionals, so everyone gets an equally 
um, happy childhood. Monica is is not happy about all this. Um, she doesn't want to have a baby. She's fought most of her life to avoid it. But in the end, she has to toe the society line because it's best for everyone. But the problem is when she has her first baby, um, things start to fall apart a bit for her. Uh, she discovers that having her own child is very different to um, the theory. And she turns to her mum, Alice, for help uh, to try to keep her child, which leads Alice to have to make a really difficult decision. She ends up having to choose between uh, following the rules, which is what she's always done, or following her instinct to help her daughter who's in an extremely difficult situation and also fighting against her own maternal instinct because she... She loves Monica with all her heart um, and found it difficult to give her up. I'd liken that experience to when women have to go back to work after a period of, of maternity leave and have to put their child into, into daycare or with family daycare or with family or friends to look after. They know it's the best for their career. They know it will mean that they can uh, have better superannuation in retirement. The family can have more money. The child will be well looked after, but it's still really, really difficult. So it's the world in maternal instinct certainly mimics a lot of aspects of the world we have today. They're just put into to hyper overdrive. Um, and so the rest of the story goes from there. Um, Alice begins to uh, dig into her own past and needs to, to confront some fairly dark truths about this, this utopian world that looks perfect on the surface, but is not so great underneath. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I mean, I found this narrative to be quite a serious dig at the Australian childcare system and support mechanisms available to new parents. I mean, you may, may, maybe you didn't mean it to be so. <laughs> I mean, in your book, you mentioned Sweden as a safe haven from the draconian New World Order of 2040 Australia. But current Swedish policies concerning child rearing are far more supportive than most places in the world, aren't they? Absolutely, they really are. They have... Um such wonderful, wonderful um, systems over there. My my brother and his wife lived in Sweden uh, for a while and would, would tell me all about what the amazing benefits were. I'm like, ah, oh, stop it. Yeah. We are very, we're very fortunate in Australia to have some great, um, we have great quality childcare. Um, we have a lot of great systems, but we could always do better. Yeah. Um, and I think recognising how, how difficult parenting is, especially in those early days, is, is certainly one of the first steps towards it. Yeah. Look, I mean, you mentioned that your brother lives in Sweden. I, I actually have a close Swedish friend whose husband was able to take a year's paid paternity leave to help care for their daughter at exactly the same time as my first child was born. So we're talking about 97, 98. Um, so, so her daughter had the benefit of two parents at home in her first year of life. Um, I, on the other hand, had only started a job when I was four months pregnant with my first child and was therefore not <laughs> entitled to any paid maternity leave at all. And to secure my job, I had to return to work full-time only nine months later um, and there was also no paternity leave entitlements here in Australia at that time. Yes, now we have some great um, childcare policies here in Australia. We have wonderful childcare workers and wonderful childcare centres but I feel like we're still quite a fair way behind compared to other countries. Absolutely. I've seen um, I've seen people getting quite creative about how to get, um, to get paid leave. I've seen, for example, a couple of friends who both had quite um, high-powered jobs she took I think the first six months or so and then he was lucky enough to have been in the same job for um, long enough to accrue some long service leave so he took three months and stayed home with the two kids there was two kids by that stage yeah. and 
Absolutely adored it. Absolutely adored it. It made them both so happy. She got to go back to work knowing that the kids were looked after by a parent um, and he got to actually be part of their lives, which had lasting effects um, ongoing. And there's a fabulous essay um, that came out, I think, last month in the quarterly essay by Annabelle Crabb called Men at Work. And it talks about this very issue about getting – we've done a great job getting women more involved in the workplace um, in, into paid work, but not the other way around. There's still – it's very much a one-way door. So trying to, to make it a social norm for men to actually come into the home and look after the kids and you know, work part-time and take paid leave and things like that, it's still – there's still a lot of work to be done there. It's wonderful that you, you mentioned that because my next question was going to be, why is it, do you think, that Australia has such a hard time catering for the needs of working parents and children? Oh, good question. Um, and look, I think part of it is because historically our system, our whole system of capitalism, is set up around the idea that men go out and earn the money, so men are the, the hunters, and women are the gatherers and the ones that stay home with the children and do the caring. We managed to break down that model over the past several decades so that women are no, no longer have to be the ones that stay at home. Um, they now have, we now have independence. We can now work. But I don't think a lot of work has been done on, on actually getting the caring role valued. Um, I think we now value women in terms of, of their ability to do paid professional work but we don't actually value what's traditionally been known as women's work. Um, and I think you can see that in the, the low pay in caring roles that still uh, persists, for example, childcare workers with their low pay, um, aged care workers, anything that requires a caring role, that, that ability to care for people um, is not, it's not financially valued, so it's not given um, a greater value in society. And I think that's a lot of it. Um, but also I don't think that's going to shift until we add to men's roles the caring role. Um, and then instead of having 50% of the population saying, this is not good enough, we need it valued, you'll have 100% of the population saying, hang on, I'm doing all this work and it's amazing and it's important raising my kids, looking after my elderly parents, but it's not being valued. I'm, I'm being penalised uh, financially. And I, I think it's difficult to to create a role for that in our in our current system so I don't have an, an answer um, to the problem but I think I think there are certainly some things that we could do um, towards improving it a lot. Well said. Um, the social experiment that is at the heart of your novel assumes that even with genetic engineering and all the support offered to new mothers there is in fact no definitive way to to cure maternal instincts, that gestating a child, giving birth and feeding your baby affects a woman in ways that are often incalculable. But this is something discounted in the new world order of your book as just hormones and something a woman can get over. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that, again, is based on my experience of, um, of going back to work and, and feeling like, correctly or otherwise, that I should be able to just, just sort of shrug off this idea that there's this human that I've grown inside me and carried around with me for months and months and months and just forget about him for 10 hours a day. Mm. It just, yeah. it just doesn't, it, it's, it's difficult. Um, it's very difficult. Trying to bring together the professional and the personal, it's, it's very hard. I remember saying in my early twenties, this is going back a long time to um, a couple of friends who both had kids. Um, but isn't, isn't it amazing? Don't you just sit there sometimes and think I, I created this 
person out of nothing, my partner and I, and they just, they're there with their own little personality. And they looked at me like I was insane. I said, no, not really. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, for me, having kids is, some people think I'm mad. It's, it's almost a spiritual thing. It's just, it's such a miracle. It's it's incredible. So the idea that we can, that we can socialize it, this, this bond out of, out of people. And I, I also recognize that not everyone feels that bond. As, as I said, there's, there's a couple of people in particular thought I was mad, but um, there's a real leveling experience in maternal instinct where everyone has to have a child um but not everyone is actually particularly interested in their children and i think that's true of of people in general um alice's friend mary is the sort of stereotype of that in that she's like yeah i get that you've got kids and i've got kids and you like your kids and that clearly causes you some emotional Mm. issues but you know i don't really care i had my kids all left behind someone else is looking after them it's all good i certainly recognize that um people approach uh, parenting and child rearing completely differently and there's not there's not one right way or wrong way. When I was reading about this in your book it made me think about forced adoption in Australia that um, has certainly come to light in recent years you know this idea that you can forcibly remove a child from its mother without any adverse consequences uh, I think is really impossible to fathom. I mean the child in many ways is unaffected by that separation in your book um, because it's, mm. it's well cared for, safe, secure, but it's the mother, um, I think, that, that does suffer. Um, mm. Even, even you know, the Marys of the world, you know, you can't make that forcible um, separation without there being some consequence. No. I think we're getting better at adoption in modern times with things like open adoption, but it's, it's always hard. Um, my my mother in her great wisdom told me when I was much, much younger when we were having the discussion um, in my teens that once once you're pregnant and you didn't intend to to be, there there is no easy solution. Um so I think I think the forced adoptions um of of decades ago, and I know they still happen in the world today, are just so traumatic um to have to give your child up. It it's difficult for the child as well, uh, wondering whether um, they have been abandoned or why they were given up. And I think in the in the world of maternal instinct, that that aspect is lessened a lot because yeah. everyone everyone is given up, um, yeah. and you're not you're not abandoned. Your mum and dad are still um, mostly around. You still see them every Sunday, so there's that aspect. Yeah. But it still is is a separation from from the parent. The other thing that's um that I found interesting to deal with in the, the maternal instinct world is that for for the mother, it's potentially a traumatic separation. But because they've moved to a sort of enhanced futuristic IVF system, mm. the father's not involved. Mm. Um, and Alice's partner, Ollie, who I would argue has the most maternal instinct of potentially anyone in the book, <laughs> <Indeed>. um, <laughs> he loves kids but isn't allowed to have them, so he becomes a, a professional um, partner, professional father. Yeah. Um, he desperately wants to be involved in the lives of his own child or children, but even if he were to be, he wouldn't necessarily have a lot to do with them. He wouldn't be around when the baby was born or, or being raised, and, and so men in the maternal instinct world often have a, a fair bit of distance from their biological children. Um, and again, that's a, a bit of a commentary on how we do things 
um, today where we, we send, we, we do a lot better than we used to. Uh, men are involved in the pregnancy, involved in the labour room, but still we send them back to full-time work as soon as the baby's born. Um, they just don't get, a bit, get to be around as much. Um, and I think, I think that's a real problem. Yeah, I agree with you. In this book, natural conception is an inferior method of procreating because it makes the human race vulnerable, um, weakened by genetic anomalies, if you will. And in fact, it is outlawed in uh, the maternal instinct world. Um, the idea, this idea strikes at the heart of what makes us human, doesn't it? The, at the point we open, um, the, the system's been going for about 20 years or so. Um, and it's been rocking along fairly well. It was, you know, fairly open to start with. It it had its, you know, um, fairly hippie foundations, if you like. Um, and so long as there were no serious genetic um, incompatibility between two partners, they were more than welcome to do nat natural conception. Um, what I drew the dial up for was for um, this idea of efficiency, which were very much. Um, married to you know current society and um, increased productivity, natural conception isn't particularly uh, efficient, <laughs> if you like. Uh, it's it's not a matter of oh we'll try once and we'll get pregnant. Um, I think when you're younger you have this idea that that's how it happens, but then when you start trying and friends around you start trying, you go oh okay it's not it's not immediate. Um, and in the maternal instinct world, the longer that people spend in the birthing home trying to get pregnant, the more money they cost the state. Yeah. So the state has come up with um, with the GDS, the Genetic Diversification System, essentially artificial conception, um, which has a much, much higher success rate, is cheaper, is more productive, and they can do um, better genetic matching for healthier babies. And if you take a step back and look at it, it's easy to see that it would be um, not too bad to convince people that's a great idea, you know, oh, cost less, that's great, healthier babies, that's great. But then in the world you see on, um, and I've pictured it through talkback shows and things like that, um, it, it goes against human nature. Like the idea of, of being able to conceive a child uh, with someone you love and care about um, the natural way, it, it's just, it's, it's one step too far. Um, and I think a lot of things we do are like that. It's sort of like, oh, push it a bit further, a bit further, a bit further. And then once you get to a certain point, you think, hey, hang on. <laughs> How did we get here? Why are we doing this? Um, and so that's the point at which we step into uh, the maternal instinct world when things have been clocking along nicely for a couple of decades. And then um, someone has a bright idea to push it just a bit too far. And the population's not quite so happy with this this new uh, development. Now, do you believe that there's a way we can balance these, you know, these reproductive rights with other pursuits? Do you think, in effect, that there is a way that women can have it all? I do, and the simple answer is to get men involved. Um, my my husband has been heavily involved in in the raising of of our children. He loves being a dad. Um, on plenty of days, I look at him and go, "You're a better parent than me. I think I'll just go out for <laughs> for dinner and leave you to it." Um, but. I, this story wouldn't have been written um, if it wasn't for my husband and um, my mum and you know, other people uh, who will help look after the kids um, so that I can actually have time to write. So, yes, I think that women can have it all, but it requires men to have it all as well. Tell me about your road to publication. What made you decide to self-publish? 
mm-hmm. I had a long and winding road to publication. The drafting process for Maternal Instinct was finished in uh, late 2016. I secured an agent in uh, New York, uh, Lauren Biker with Fine Print Literary Management. She's been absolutely fantastic. So that was early 2017. Um, it then went on submission for the better part of two years, and during that time, I got a lot of interest, which was which was really heartening. It was fabulous, um, and I did a couple of rewrites for a major publisher over in the US, but ultimately didn't make it over the line. Um, and a few things in my life changed during that time as well. So the decision to self-publish actually came from for a few reasons. First of all, to be blunt, it didn't get a major publisher, um, but also. I had a couple of options at that stage to either um, look at small presses or to publish it myself. At that point in my life earlier this year, um, things had got to a point where I just couldn't see how I could make space in my life to write um, for about the next 10 years or so. <laughs> just Things <laughs> no. had become a lot harder. I know that sounds extreme, but I tried a whole, a whole bunch of different models to try and make it work and it just wasn't. And I thought I'm not going to not going to go to a, a small press and ask to publish this book and then never write a book again because um, publishing houses need to make money as well. They prefer to have an author who actually has a career ahead of them and more than one book in them. So I've got a background in in digital marketing and project management. So I decided to to take the plunge and publish it myself. Um, I launched a Kickstarter campaign uh, back in February, March, and uh, had 80 wonderful people respond to that so that I could raise the funds to fund the publication. So the actual book publication process has been largely what it would be if I'd gone with a small press. So it's had professional editing, professional cover, all that sort of stuff. Um, And I've published as print on demand, which means you can still get it all at all online major retailers um, and also in ebook form and it'll be posted out to you. So there's no sort of warehouse somewhere where there's you know, several thousand copies waiting to be sent out. It's um, Each one is printed specifically for you when you order it. So that's my road to publication. Since then, I have remodeled my life again <laughs> and, and, um, and found time to write um, again. So I've actually finished um, the first draft of my second book. Uh, and that will be um, a game pitch to large publishing houses, and we'll we'll see how that goes. But I now know that I can go uh, down the road of of um, publishing it myself, which is fabulous. It means these sort of niche stories, which don't generally uh, fit the the model of the larger publishing houses, can still get to readers, which is I think amazing. It's really really good. So Rebecca, what tips could you offer to the aspiring or emerging writer? I would say. Um, get in there and write. Um, there was an experiment done a while back, and I can't remember the exact details of it, but it was something along the lines of they got one one group to um, ask them within a week to make one piece, I think it was pottery, that was absolutely perfect, and then they paid the second group based on the um, the volume that they churned out. So they had to turn out lots and lots and lots and lots, and that would be how they got their payment, and the first group, they had to produce something perfect. The irony is at the end of the week, the first group actually produced something that was of less um, quality than the second group. So the moral of the story is write lots and lots and lots, even if it's terrible, um, and you're more likely to come up with a great product. Um, My second piece of advice would be to surround yourself with the writing community, whether that's at an in-person 
um, writing group through, through a local writer centre or whether it's digitally. For me, I've always found digital easier. Um, leaving the house as a parent of small children is challenging at the best of times. Um, but I love the dig digital community. So surround yourself with other writers. They're very generous and very supportive people. Um, and I would always say uh, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of to and froing about whether self publishing is best or traditional publishing is best. My advice would be to try traditional publishing first. Um, self publishing is is a lot of work. It'll take you away from the writing. Would recommend trying for traditional publishing first. It's where the experts in the area are, and they will help your story be the best that it can be. If readers wanted to connect with you, where could they find you? They can find me at my website, storyaddict.com.au or on Twitter at Rebecca Bowyer, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-B-O-W-Y-E-R-A-U or on Instagram or Facebook at Rebecca Bowyer Writer. Rebecca, there's so much in this book that I wish we had more time to discuss. It's a fascinating insight into human procreation, survival of the species and the thing that no government policy can regulate, maternal instinct. I wanted to thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Congratulations on a marvellous debut. Thank you so much, Claudine. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, listeners, for a chance to win your very own copy of Rebecca's book, Maternal Instinct, head over to my Instagram or Facebook page and follow the prompts to win. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>